Hello and welcome to Holistic Health Chats, a podcast where we chat about all things holistic women's health and everything in between. I'm your host, Selene Douglas, a women's health nutritionist with a focus on helping women to heal holistically and live pain and symptom free. I'm so happy that you've made your way here. Tune in every week so we can listen, learn and be inspired together. In today's episode of Holistic Health Chats, I had the pleasure of talking to fellow nutritionist Zoe Morissini. Zoe and I discussed the fundamentals of autoimmune conditions, including what an autoimmune condition actually is, common symptoms, triggers, and the role that the environment plays in the onset and development of autoimmune conditions. If you have any follow-up questions from today's episode, I would love if you would please reach out to either Zoe or myself over on Instagram and let us know what your top takeaways are. You can find the links to both of us on Instagram in the show notes. And without further ado, here is today's episode. Hi, Zoe, and welcome to the show. Thanks, Elaine. Lovely to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Uh, Today, we're talking all about autoimmune conditions and understanding what they are, what causes them, all that exciting stuff. But before we get into it, I'd love if you could just share two facts about yourself that most people don't know. It's so funny. I I really had... (laughs) trouble coming up with this but I did (laughs) find two really important things one is that I can play the piano um not well but I can and the second one is I don't actually think there's any place for licorice in this world no none Mm, whatsoever the lolly that is Mm -hmm. but but yeah so that's a fact Mm -hmm. is I I cannot cannot (laughs) see any place for it I like that. Yeah, I don't like licorice either. And I am actually quite jealous of that. I wish, I mean, you know, I could obviously learn, but I remember as a kid, once someone told me that I had pianist fingers. And so I asked my mom to take me to piano lessons, but I lasted about three. And then I just went back to horse riding because I thought it was more fun. It was a career opportunity for you. Exactly. I've got the hands for it, apparently. Tell us a bit about what it is that you do in your business and how you're helping women. The standard response is that I'm a clinical nutritionist. I work in a private setting, so that means I work one-on-one with uh, women or and men sometimes, uh, all small groups, and I help them to eat in a way that helps them achieve their goals, basically, like their health goals or their feeling goals or their body goals or whatever. But I think most nutritionists know that day-to-day their job is much different to that standard Mm. response. I think it just comes down to helping someone understand why they feel the way they do and what extent food influences that and then how we can listen and respond and help behaviour change happen and help mindset change happen Mm. in a way that suits them really. So it's a complicated, you know, our day-to-day job is not, you know, (laughs) counsellor guys you know there's a whole heap of hats that we have to wear yeah definitely I can definitely relate to that I think people think that you're just there to tell people what to eat and that's about it but it's actually really really different to that sometimes and 
you know, you could have two clients with, you know, not that this ever happens, but exactly the same sort of uh, set of health goals and health issues and barriers and things like that. And that conversation with one person is going to go completely differently to the other person because everyone's got different barriers to change, different habits to change, different willingness to do those things. And it's, you know, the information side of things in helping people to change their diet for the better is a very, you know, it's an important part, but it's one piece of what we do. There's so much that goes into it. Yeah. Absolutely. Education's only a tiny bit of it. Yeah, definitely. And how did you get into, I love this question for everyone because I think it's always so exciting. How did you get into the nutrition world? Well, I'm actually uh, trained in social science. So I've got super duper big hex bill. Uh, and that's <laughs> for anyone listening from overseas, that's the government funded university loan. And mine covers three degrees mm-hmm. <laughs> and two of them were done prior to me starting nutrition. Okay. Uh, So it's a long story, but essentially while I was on maternity leave with my first daughter, I decided to do some nutrition subjects because they married in really well with the humanitarian development stuff that I had done and was working Mm -hmm. in and had done my study in. And fast forward a degree later, I fell in love with it Mm. and fell in love with private clinical nutrition. So who would have thought I was a, like, bang smack scientist like health scientist but yep. yeah I think it's probably the social side of it that married with the yeah. the, the nutrition science the ke- the biochemistry and, and everything that is a nice little area for me to sit um, yeah and how good that would that be to it. have that social science aspect with what we've just talked about the other parts that we're doing yeah I think that's what keeps me going and I think that's probably what makes it so rewarding is not just seeing people feel better but it being a much more holistic outcome for people, like they feel better in their mind, mm. body and soul at the end of it, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, it always sounds cliche, but it's so true that, you know, and I also think that food is a bit of a gateway to other things as well. When you start improving your nutrition and your diet, then it's, it's kind of, someone explained this analogy to me the other day about, you know, the, you see those guys with big stretches in their ear and, those huge, huge stretches. And you think like, God, how did they stretch their earlobe out that big? But it started just like what we wear with a tiny little earring piercing. And then over time that stretch and stretch and stretch. And I think that sort of happens with health. You know, it might start with one dietary change and one this, and then it ends up being all these other aspects of health that people end up exploring. So I think food is a bit of a a gateway thing in that sense. Yeah, similar to fitness. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. They go hand in hand. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and did you have any health challenges of your own that sort of pulled you into it or was it more so just situational? I would say that my struggles with, like I've always had an interest in nutrition outside of my own personal struggles. And I had that, you know, I grew up in, not sort of semi-rural and mum and dad always took from the veggie patch and stuff we did we ate a lot of our own homegrown food so it was important to me on a sort of more subconscious level I would have gone through a distinct and protracted period of disordered eating and and that has evolved I think the stretching of the ear is a really great example of it Mm -hmm. It, it is a really great analogy 
because I look at my own process and how it's evolved Mm. and my own attitudes towards food and my own attitudes towards health. And it's never, it's always dynamic, right? So I I would have had that period of time. Did it inform my decision to go into nutrition? Probably. Mm. Um, Does it still inform it? Probably. But has it evolved into so much more? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, And certainly my, the way I eat now is vastly different to how it was back then and part of that is because I've studied and I work in nutrition and, and part of it is an evolution of mindset towards mm. myself and towards my body and towards you know and self-compassion and I think it's those things that I've learned that equally is important yes you know in working with other women than just like where I came from yeah and, of course and, and the nutrition around food yeah yeah definitely So we'll get into today's topic, which is all around autoimmunity. So I'd just love to start out if you could give us a bit of an overview about what autoimmunity is, what are autoimmune conditions, because we're hearing so much about them these days and they're on the rise. I mean, the most common one I see in clinic is thyroid conditions and um, autoimmune thyroid conditions are definitely something I see a lot of, and that might be the demographic as well that I attract, but in general, they are on the rise. So yeah, I just love if you could give us a bit of an overview or intro as to what that actually means. So simply put, it's when your immune system starts to recognize your own tissue as something that's foreign or needs to be destroyed. So in a similar way that it does for viruses or bacteria or foreign objects, but then it starts to attack your own tissue. And these cells, the immune cells, that's quite a common occurrence. It's Mm -hmm. not, you know, a lot of us have a level of autoimmunity or cells that will attack our own cells naturally, but it's when the body fails to recognise these cells that are doing that enough Mm -hmm. and to destroy them that that decision can become much more of a sort of wholehearted attack and Mm -hmm. then that you have an autoimmune condition. Yeah. And what are some of the common autoimmune conditions? Uh, The ones I see similar to you are, again, the thyroid autoimmune Mm -hmm. conditions like Hashimoto's or Graves, Uh, joint and skin-related ones common as well in clinics, so rheumatoid arthritis or mm-hmm. seretic arthritis or ankylosing spondylitis. Mm. And then I also see a little bit of gut or systemic autoimmunity, um, mm-hmm. celiac, IBD, and even uh, lupus I see sometimes. But there's like there's up to 80, I think, now. Yeah, yeah, so, I read that. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's like they're the ones I see and I have experience in but so many there's so many yeah Yeah. and so there's so many different types is there a common denominator in terms of what causes them there's cause and then there's triggers probably if we were to find a common denominator that would be two things Mm -hmm. one is a chronic overload or a chronic stimulation of the immune system for whatever reason and for many people, a genetic predisposition. But I think that's the hardest thing about it and the hardest thing for people who get diagnosed with one mm. is there are no straight answers in any of this. And, you know, you're going to ask me several questions in a minute and my answer to all of them could be, it depends. <laughs> well, I mean, anything yeah, health and nutrition <laughs> related, it depends, right? Yeah, but in terms of like, 
there are certainly like both what I see in clinic already in my, you know, short years, but also in the research, there are certainly common things that come up Mm. as far as things that create relapses or flares and things that perhaps trigger the onset. And they can be similar, but they can be anything from environmental right through to endogenous, like hormonal, pregnancy, stress, environmental stressors, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And for any, I I guess most people probably don't know, but it's usually women that unfortunately are the ones uh, more susceptible to autoimmune conditions. So I think the stat is about 75% of autoimmune conditions are women that are getting them. And that does indicate that there is obviously uh, a hormonal role in that. And the times when we're sort of most at risk, I guess, are when we go through big hormonal fluctuations. So you already mentioned like pregnancy, postpartum, menopause as well is a really big one. And of the clients that I do have that have gone through menopause, that's something I see quite a lot is that they've gone through menopause and then all of a sudden things are no longer the same anymore, which does yeah indicate that there's an estrogenic role or some other hormonal role involved in the development of that and possibly that that is one of the triggers. Yeah, but there's a, and there's always... I think that's one of the things that it's not to scare people about hormones as well because mm. it's always overlaid on top of an individual's genetics and life yes. and, and other exposures. Like I think one of the ways I try and explain it is it's about the load. Mm-hmm. And so you can say take the example of the relationship with lupus and the oral contraceptive. Mm-hmm. So you can have a whole heap of people on the oral contraceptive that don't get lupus you know, and there's a whole heap of people that have lupus that haven't been on the oral contraceptive. But there is this understanding in the research that there is a relationship potentially with the development of lupus and the oral contraceptive. So it's about sort of holding all of that in your hand and understanding clinically what your risk factors are and what's making things worse for you or mm-hmm. what's creating relapses. And that's why it takes time and is complicated, but it, it means there are things you can do. Yeah, definitely. And what are some of the other more environmental triggers that you see commonly? It's hard to say because it's so, so different Mm. for each people, person. And that's what sucks because every time someone comes in clinic, it's like, well, we just got to sit down and take the time and we've got to eliminate different things. We've got to sort of do a whole heap of detective work yeah. with their past and their present and their future. What do I see commonly? Mm. Hormones are the big, so external and uh, exogenous, so outside and internal. Mm-hmm. Uh, gut health, microbiome. And what do you mean, sorry, for someone who doesn't understand that, by outside and inside hormones? Well, we've got hormones that are created, that are naturally experienced in the body or created in the body. So your example of postpartum or Mm -hmm. menopause. So there are times when, you know, hormones are just so powerful and potent and we are so vulnerable to their potency, even though we need it. Yeah. But we're also vulnerable to their fluctuations and hormones, especially sex hormones like estrogen and progesterone, the ones that help us make babies and hold babies, are also immunologically active. Mm. So they have an impact on our immune system, and that's why it's relevant to autoimmune disease. And so when you've got hormones that we have inside, 
that, that are natural and supposed to be there, but they are impacting our immune system in different ways, that's when you can see a relationship between hormones and immunity. Mm -hmm. But also there's external hormones. So there's hormones that we take in medication, like the oral contraceptive or um, the marina. And then there's even hormones that come, that act. So they're like, uh, they're not hormones, but they're things in our environment that impact our hormones. Mm -hmm. So they might interact with the bits in our body that respond to hormones, our own hormones, but they can have an effect on our body and the way our hormones play out. Yeah. And they're kind of they're not hormones from the outside. They're just chemicals or things in our environment that can interact with our hormones. And all of those can play a role. So hormones, what was the other thing that you'd mentioned? Oh, look, our relation. So basically anything that Mm -hmm. can have a stimulatory or an overstimulatory role on effect on our immune system. Yeah. So that can be anything from surgical procedures, heavy metals, toxins, chemicals, stress. Yes, that's probably one of the biggest ones I see. Stress, especially stress. for women. Yes. You know, intestinal permeability, but that's a sort of a whole other mm. conversation that you and I can have for another couple of hours. Food intolerances, you know, inadequate development of the immune system or infection. So mm-hmm. one of the things, so, you know, a, a bad case of glandular fever mm-hmm. that you got when you were 13. You know, all of these things that might have had decision-making roles on the immune system can influence or trigger or impact mm. the, the risk of developing autoimmune disease or relation or flare-ups of yeah. autoimmune diseases. And I know this is going to be different from everyone, but what are some of the common, say, symptoms? Like how do people start to recognise that, hey, there's something going on here? And often I find that it takes people a long time to get a diagnosis with autoimmune conditions because either there's not thorough investigation being done or because it is quite complicated. That investigation work is not being done thoroughly and people are kind of getting to the point where they're going like, what what is going on? What is wrong with me? So what are some of the symptoms that people might start to recognize if they have an autoimmune condition things first anytime you feel unusually crap for an extended period of time you know for no reason or for mm-hmm. no apparent reason and if that isn't resolved by your gp then go and find someone else who will mm-hmm. resolve it for you or will at least investigate and rule out stuff what do i mean by unusually crap probably looking at symptoms that don't resolve yeah. That, that you just sort of go, I just really don't feel like that's right. And that can be anything from joint pain that doesn't go away, that, you know, is also includes a bit of swelling, mm-hmm. you know, that, that you can't identify why that would be happening or stiffness, even just joint stiffness, early morning joint stiffness in your ankles that sort of can even get worse, worse with rest or back pain at night, unexplained rashes, fevers. Obviously, if you're getting repeat fevers or blood in your stools, so mm-hmm. big ticket uh, symptoms that shouldn't be ignored anyway. Mm-hmm. Swelling and redness, like in your joints, skin barrier dysfunction. So if you've got, say, changes to your skin that look unusual, you should be getting checked anyway. Hair loss, recurrent mouth ulcers that don't go away or come back all the time, problems with gluten. 
that's probably a big one. Mm, yep. <laughs> you eat bread and problems you have with like iron and swelling. Yeah. Yes. Repeat and uh, problems with iron that don't get resolved with yeah. supplementation. Yeah. So I know there are a whole heap of weirdy fatigue. Fatigue. Yeah. Fatigue is everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And if it's not resolved, but like I said, by the GP, try again. Yeah. I think that's such an important message is to try again and continue looking for answers mm. because no one I say this all the time, like no one's going to advocate for your health except you. And unfortunately, sometimes that investigation work just isn't done thoroughly enough. And so if it isn't resolved, then yeah, you do need to go and find someone else who's going to be able to help you in doing that detective work. And, you know, you can, of course, try and do it on your own, but it's probably going to be quite hard and, you know. And not always safe. Yeah, and not always safe and you'll go around in circles and that kind of thing. So definitely reach out to someone like Zoe who can help you with that. Just on the gut, I wanted to circle back to the gut permeability thing just quickly because I know, you know, in a lot of places online, it says the trifecta Mm -hmm. is really that genetic susceptibility, the gut permeability and the environmental trigger that's sort of the trifecta cause. But Personally, in clinic, I've seen people that do not have an issue with gut permeability who still go on to develop autoimmune conditions. So, you know, from my clinical experience anyway, I don't necessarily see that that's always a valid piece in that trifecta cause. What are your uh, thoughts? Yeah, I would agree. I, like, I think something like, I remember listening to something of Jason Horolax a little while mm. ago, who's a gut specialist, a microbiome specialist in Australia. And he was saying something like only 30 to 40% mm. of Hashimoto's patients have gut permeability. So yeah. you cannot presume it, nor can you presume that if you have it, you'll get an autoimmune disease, nor should you presume that you should be repairing permeability if you have autoimmunity. Yeah, that's why you so want to test. I would agree with that. And yeah. it's the same thing in clinic. And there's a ton of people who have permeability that don't have autoimmune diseases yes. as well. So, I, yeah, I think it's so much more complicated than that. Do I check it? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. because clinical management, uh, nutritional clinical management of autoimmune diseases always starts with understanding all of the stresses Mm. that are on that individual and gut permeability, chronic, hardcore gut permeability and food intolerances in an individual is an immunological load. Yes. And so anything that you can do to reduce that load is potentially beneficial. Yeah. So getting all those pieces in place. And I mean, that really then Mm. goes on to inform the protocol that you're going to follow Mm. without that you're kind of just going oh yeah let's give this a go could be that could be (laughs) could be this but you don't really know unless you're doing that testing and yeah it can it can get expensive sometimes doing that but I find especially with autoimmune conditions they can be really debilitating for people and so when someone's at that point they're kind of like I don't care, just get me the information yeah. that we need to move forward. In Without that, you're treating the theoretical condition rather than yeah. the individual. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's problematic and I think it's something that's problematic within our industry. Yes, well. yes, definitely. I also think that that ten, can come with, in some instances, difficulties 
in or barriers to getting all of the testing because it can get costly and some clients might have resistance to or or might have you know financial barriers to actually doing some of that testing and so you know we always try and explain it in the best way possible about why it's important but ultimately that does come down to the person's decision about whether they're wanting to go ahead and do that testing but you know the more information the, the better and it really does it's just so important it's like trying to put together a puzzle with like multiple big pieces missing you know it's just becomes really really difficult and we obviously don't want to be guessing with that kind of thing. Yeah, and I also find, so I remember earlier on in my career, you know, when you you come across something like the autoimmune protocol by Sarah Ballantyne and a a few other practitioners, which is amazing. Like there's, I've had some amazing results by putting the AIP in place, right? But it's hardcore. It's difficult for anyone to put in place and let alone someone who's feeling really rubbish. And feeling rubbish could be a real hallmark (laughs) of an autoimmune condition, especially some of them like lupus and, you know, you can really, and Hashimoto's, you feel just awful. So having to do such a hardcore diet protocol can be more of a stress on the individual than need be. Mm. And so for me, you know, like are there still some people that I put on the AIP? Yes. 100%. 100%. It's mm. tr- fully strict AIP. Yes. Less so these days, though, because I think mm. you can get people, generally speaking, not always, because everyone's different and every autoimmune condition is different, but you can get p- people feeling a little bit better with more targeted responses to the individual often based on testing Yes. first. And then if a move to more strict diet regimes is possible at least you've got someone feeling better and more energized and more clear in their thought brain fog that's another one yes brain fog yeah, is yeah. a symptom and more clearer in their thought and able like having a better platform to make food decisions rather than giving them this immensely difficult protocol straight yeah, up yeah yep and it is really difficult and you know that it's not every client that you're going to get great compliance with that because it's hard. It's really hard, you know, to be able to, you know, it changes your social activities, all of that kind of thing. It just completely changes your life really to follow something like that. And, you know, if you get amazing results with it, of course it's worth it, but it just might not always be necessary or the right approach um, for everyone. And I'd just like to talk about, we've talked, we've said how autoimmune conditions are on the rise. And I'd just like to hear your thoughts on why, you know, you think that that's the case. I mean, I'm sure there's lots of different reasons, but personally, I think it's largely due to just the immense exposure to different things that we never used to have. uh, And we just, getting to the point where a lot of us can't tolerate that anymore. Yeah, and more vulnerable immune systems. Yeah, yeah. Like if you think about the stress that's on the body from day dot, while it's in womb, in the womb, you know, the babies are being born while their mums are under immense amount of stress and mental health issues and environmental exposures. Like we, Our immune system is constantly having to deal with that challenge. And even something like all the so much more research around the gut microbiome like our microbiome has evolved to be doing most of our immune work for us mm. that's the, like we're we're smart right we've our our body is super smart so it's it's using gut bacteria to do its immune to make it more tolerant mm-hmm. but 
there are so many things that we assault our microbiome with these days from the very beginning as well. And so that malestablishment of an immune system, a tolerant immune system, can't be setting us up well. Mm. Then it continues to get assaulted for the rest of our life. And part of that's humanity. You know, mm. part of that's just us being humans and vulnerable and and that's just life. But we have a, a contemporary world that is more exposed to stress and toxins and crappy food <laughs> and sedentary behaviour mm-hmm. more than ever before in history. And that's unsurprising to me. Yeah. I mean, food, obviously we're (laughs) probably biased, but food is a big part of it. But then there's so many other things in that, like your stress, like you said, sedentary, we're all sitting for way too long. We spend so much time in front of our screens all the time. We have exposure to so many more devices. We obviously now have all kinds of different frequencies and things like that around us that we're exposed to all the time. Sunlight. Yeah, we're getting less sunlight. You know, some people probably aren't even seeing sunlight like first thing in the morning or seeing the sun go down, which really messes with your circadian rhythm. We know what that does in mice at least. Mm. And yeah, and your microbiome. (laughs) And what are some other things? Our food, you know, there's just so many things in the supermarkets that are sold to us that we should not be eating. Like there is just so much not really fit for human consumption there. Then you look at like our water quality and just there's so many different aspects and then how we're exercising in order to make up for the fact that we are sitting all day is like hard, fast, intense, smash your body at the gym and then go sit down for nine hours. Like that is just not... And then not not get enough sleep. And then not get enough sleep, right, because we're watching heaps of Netflix Mm -hmm. and then we're up again at like, you know, 4 or 5 a.m., whatever it is, doing it all the next day. And it is just not how we're designed to live. And, yeah, I see autoimmune conditions as like, you know, almost your body going, no, 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 I cannot do this. And I don't think we should underestimate. I just, I listened to a podcast really early on in my nutrition career and it really stuck with me and I think a part of it was a driver of why I started to work with women and and there could be plenty of women that would disagree with this and plenty of men that would disagree with this as well and it was just one opinion but I really Mm -hmm. loved the sort of the lesson that it learned it was this lady who I can't remember who it was she was some she was a researcher in autoimmunity and she was talking about the relationship between stress and autoimmunity But she was also saying about the relationship between stress and women, just being women. And and she said, I'll give you an example. There was a study done on Tinder, Mm -hmm. you know, the dating slash slash app. And they asked men and women what they were most scared of in using the app. And the women, it was they were going to get hurt when they turned up for their date or, you know, sexually assaulted or whatever it was that was was going to harm them physically. And for men, the thing they were most scared of generally across the board was that the woman was not as attractive (laughs) as they were in their photo. And it just exemplified the sort of load, the, the, the mental load, just intrinsically being a woman 
you may be carrying around. And that, you know, she was saying that's potentially come from the beginning of time, you know, the protector roles, the nurturing roles, the responsibility, the doing it all. And we now have a we now have a society where women should be doing it all. Yes, you know, I think that's all roles and succeeding beyond perfection. Yes. The stress and we know the immunological outcome mm. of stress. We know in research what stress does to the immune mm. system. Yeah. yeah, I think that whole piece is again another topic um in of itself, mm. but it's so true nowadays women are, you know, wanting to be the nurturing caring mum and that at home if they're in that stage of their life, but then they're also wanting to exceed at work be the career woman, you know, match their partner's income, like all of these other additional stresses. And look, maybe you can do it all, but also maybe we don't have to. And, you know, it's potentially, I'm just going to say it, but, you know, maybe a bit of a negative outcome of the whole feminist movement that we are different to men. There's no denying that. And I don't actually think that on a personal note that that should be, I think we should be encouraged to be, different and celebrate our differences because that's exactly what makes us men and women and that's what gives us that beautiful balance I think well that's what's (laughs) the point of having us all there we can all help each other right like we don't have to all we live in a tribe and a community so that we can actually live together and take the load off each other Mm -hmm. you know we shouldn't be having to do everything nor should men you know no exactly yeah yeah yeah. anyway for some reason we 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 have to stand alone don't we no there was just one one last question (laughs) that I wanted to ask you and because this is a common question that I get asked by my clients. I'm sure you do too. Is can they actually put, or can we put autoimmune conditions into remission? Like, is it a sort of once you have it, you have it, and there's not really much you can do about it. It's just about management, or can it actually be put into remission? Yep. So there's a difference between remission and cure. You can't cure it once the decision has been made by the immune system. It's been made. If there's ever uh, an industry that may eventually be able to cure it in the future. I think we're we're not far, you know, we, yeah. we've got a good chance. But no, we can't cure it. Remission is when it's, the you know, there's no longer the active immune response or immune intolerance. Can you put it into remission? It's a really difficult question to answer because I think there's a lot of false information in the industry and a lot of people that will confidently hang their hat on, yes, you can. And I think that gives false hope. And I think it's difficult for people to hear that especially if they've failed at doing an AIP or they've they're not able to quit smoking or they're you know so so it's all your fault if you Mm -hmm. haven't been able to put it into remission so I think I have to be really sensitive in my answer and I think there's also a lot of people out there that want to avoid medication which Mm -hmm. is also understandable but sometimes medication is life-saving if you've got Graves' disease, you have like <laughs> going on medication can prevent your heart from completely burning out. You know, so yeah. there's that. It's all got to be. Uh, it's all complicated. So I'm going to answer the same way. It, as <laughs> it depends. Previously. It depends on the type, <laughs> severity, symptoms, and whether medical intervention is advised. Mm-hmm. So celiac, for example, once it's diagnosed, can be put into remission by avoiding gluten and other cross-reactive substances. Mm-hmm. So yes, in the case of celiac, sometimes medication can put you into remission, medication Mm -hmm. alone, without any other factors. Sometimes medical intervention plus diet and lifestyle is the thing that can help you get into remission. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's also recognizing you may be able to get into remission, but you might put 
diet and lifestyle in place and then you lengthen the time before it flares again you know so there's all these complicating factors but I guess can you put it into remission yes so you can sometimes with medication sometimes you can like in celiac um, but I think it's important to know for people to know that they can't always control it yeah it's not always because they're not eating right or they're not always doing all the stuff Sometimes it flares and that's the nature of the disease. And sometimes you work really hard to eat all the right foods and do all the right stuff and it doesn't remit and that's okay too. But sometimes medication is okay too and and required. So, But have I seen symptoms resolve with nutritional intervention? Almost always. Yes. Somebody feels better when they change their diet. Almost always. Not every time, but almost. Yeah, exactly. So it's definitely worth a shot. <laughs> you know, it can oh, make a I world of difference. I would not, I would not trumpet nutrition for autoimmune the way that I do if I didn't see mm. some of the most incredible outcomes with nutrition. Yeah, definitely. I see that a lot too, which is really exciting so far. Super exciting. Yet to see, like you said, someone that doesn't improve by improving their nutrient status whether that be through nutrient and supplements. Yeah, I'm really yet to see that not have a positive uh, outcome in someone. Thank you so much for your time today, Zoe. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Can you tell us or can you tell the listeners rather where they can get in touch with you and hear more about how to work with you? Uh, My website's the best place to start or my social media. Um, I'm on there far too often. It's just my name, zoemorafini.com. And you can uh, email direct uh, or uh, send uh, an SMS to get a discovery call. Mm-hmm. And either way, whatever whatever is easiest to you, I'll be there. Perfect. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Holistic Health Chats. If you enjoyed this episode, I would be so grateful if you could leave me a rating and review in iTunes, as this allows me to help more women just like you. Holistic Health Chats is not intended to replace medical advice, so please consult with your practitioner before making any changes to your current health. If you are ready to take your health to the next level and would like some personalized support, the next step is booking in for a complimentary health chat. Please head to selendouglas.com forward slash book for more information.